I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and irregular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts, an irregular warfare podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of irregular warfare. Today, I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. I'm Bill Bupert, retired U.S. Army. I've been an intelligence professional in uniform for nearly a quarter century, serving in a variety of light infantry, airborne, and special forces assignments. Since retirement, I have been an itinerant practitioner and scholar of irregular warfare. I find myself among giants like Douglas Porch and John Gentile in the Cointra camp instead of the Coindonista camp. We Cointras are a single-digit percentage of the irregular warfare community. The Coindonistas are the vast army of apparatchiks and apologists who fire the engines of modern irregular warfare planet-wide. We're the skeptics and the doubters of all things irregular warfare and special operations. And I'm not saying that there's no efficacy nor efficiency to the employment of these kind of forces, this kind of national force planning, and examining these type of options to use in conflict planet-wide. I simply noticed a jarring gap in this part of the discussion and conversation. We'll dabble in the history occasionally, the headlines, book reviews, and technical discussions on the tools and techniques of waging these wars from the perspective of all the antagonists. We will be conducting some technical examinations at first to lay down the framework and the vocabulary of our discussion going forward. And you'll find that this will lend itself in later episodes when we start to really go down this rabbit hole in a more detailed and sometimes trying fashion. Words and definitional constructs are so critically important to defining these kind of issues. If you don't find yourself being able not only to see the visionary framework of what we're trying to apprehend, understand, and discover, what we find out is that not only can we not grasp the details that inform that, we don't know where the destination is for a lot of these studies, whether quantitative or qualitative, whatever the case may be. The epistemology, the study, the history, everything that's involved in military history is so all-encompassing in every aspect of the human condition. One would be hard-pressed to examine these, especially in a regular warfare, where we have political dimensions really instantiating themselves at the tactical and strategic level. What occurs as a result of that is that that impacts the operational strategic and grand strategic level. But we have these stories that interweave with each other that, in the end, are fascinating. I'm still trying to take a determination on the length of these podcasts, how often I'll be doing them. My ambition tells me fortnightly. My reality tells me possibly monthly. I've got years of these podcasts in my head that I'd like to get off my shirt, as it were. Our agenda for the remainder of this podcast is we're going to do some technical discussions on where the United States, which guides the West and NATO and everything in between, because what I'd like to discuss today is I want to discuss the NDS, which is the National Defense Strategy, 
and I want to discuss some of the tools that we analyze in the irregular warfare community, such as generations of warfare, a characterization of civil wars, and what regional threat complexes look like. And then we'll conclude this episode. So with that, let's carry on. Every five years, four to five years, a national defense strategy is one of two documents that the U.S. issues whence the rest of the West follows. In 2018, in the national defense strategy, they actually discussed irregular warfare. They actually created an irregular warfare annex to the national defense strategy. And its central idea was to prevent this boom and bust cycle that we constantly have and try to institutionalize irregular warfare as a core competency for both conventional and special operations forces. And of course, and no one will be surprised by this, this is when the Army announced that it would shut down its rather competent and well-respected asymmetric warfare group. And of course, this followed the Marine Corps' previous divestments of capabilities, such as their center for advanced operational culture learning. What we have is an institutional reluctance on the part of the U.S. Army to really take this seriously in a fundamentally coherent fashion. They haven't done it for their entire history, despite what happened in Vietnam, despite what happened in the interregnum between Vietnam and 2001 and 2003 with Afghanistan and Iraq, respectively. And you really find that I'm hoping with the issuance of the 2022 National Defense Strategy, they take care of this. But I suspect what's going to happen is that the two-war standard of being able to fight two wars at the same time on a conventional footing will be what reigns supreme and not anything else. So let's take care of some tools, as it were, so that we're all speaking the same language here. William Lynn characterized and talked about something that he referred to as generations of warfare. I'm going to be quoting Lind here so I can make sure that I'm not putting words in his mouth. First generation warfare, of course, refers to ancient and post-classical battles fought with massed manpower using phalanx, line and column tactics with uniformed soldiers governed by the state and the Treaty of Westphalia. So let me quote Lind here. In 1648, at the end of the Thirty Years' War, quote, the Treaty of Westphalia gave a practical sovereignty to the German states, which until then were semi-independent components of the Holy Roman Empire. This more firmly established the sovereignty of the nation-state, which meant, among other things, that governments would have exclusive rights to organize and maintain their own militaries. Before this time, many armies and nations were controlled by religious orders, and many wars were fought in melee combat or subversively through bribery and assassination. The first generation of modern warfare was intended to create a straightforward and orderly means of waging warfare. Quote, what this would mean for the audience is that those of you who have had the pleasure of watching the movie The Patriot, you found that during the first American Revolution from 17. 75 until 1783, it was characteristic of the armies to get within maybe 50 to 75 meters of each other with their unrifled blunderbusses and some rifled firearms 
and fire at each other at what we would consider almost point-blank range. If you've read the books and the histories of that war, and as a matter of fact, if you've read the books and the histories of the Napoleonic Wars to follow a mere few decades afterwards, you would find that this kind of mass formations of, in the Napoleonic Wars, assisted by much artillery, mass formation of uniformed soldiers going toe-to-toe and fighting it out in what we, look, what we look at as a conventional fashion. So quoting Lind again, Alternatively, it has been argued that the Peace of Westphalia did not solidify the power of the nation-state, but that the Thirty Years' War itself ushered in an era of large-scale combat that was simply too costly for smaller mercenary groups to carry out on their own. According to this theory, smaller groups chose to leave mass combat and the expenses associated with it in the domain of the nation-state, end of quote. And for those of you who don't know the history of the Thirty Years' War, I recommend you take a look at it, because if anything would inspire you to try to codify and classify a way to restrict combat to uniformed antagonist, that war would be it. Ugly is a four-letter word, but ugly is the apt description of the Thirty Years' War. Quoting Lind again, again, first-generation warfare. The increased accuracy and speed of the rifled musket and the breech loader marks the end of first-generation warfare. The concept of vast lines of soldiers meeting face-to-face became impractical due to the heavy casualties that could be sustained because these technologies were adopted gradually throughout the Americas and Europe. The exact end of the first generation of modern warfare depends on the region. But all world powers had moved on by the latter half of the 19th century. End of quote. So now this ushers in the era of second-generation warfare. One could characterize it as attrition warfare and static warfare. It's the early modern tactics used after the invention of the rifled musket and the breech-loading weapons and continuing through the development of the machine gun and indirect fire. The term second-generation warfare was created by the U.S. military in 1989. In attrition warfare, and I quote Lind again, in the 19th century, the invention of the breech-loading rifled musket meant longer range, greater accuracy, and faster rate of fire. Marching ranks of men straight into the barrage of fire from such weapons would cause tremendous rates of casualties. So a new strategy was developed. Second-generation warfare still maintained lines of battle, but focused more on the use of technology to allow smaller units of men to maneuver separately. These smaller units allowed for faster advances, less concentrated casualties, and the ability to use cover and concealment to advantage. End of quote. You will note that by 1917 and 1918, in the European Theater of Operations for World War I, that you found the Germans introducing what they referred to as shock troops, which would be the precursor and predecessor to the maneuver warfare that the Germans would pioneer and practice in the Second World War, and that all of the other Allied nations fighting the Axis powers during that war would emulate. Again, Lind. To some degree, these concepts have remained in use even as the next generations have arisen. So the end of the second generation is not as clearly defined as that of the first. The development of Blitzkrieg highlighted some of the flaws of static firing positions and slow-moving infantry. So this can be considered the beginning of the end of the second generation, at least as the dominant force in military strategy. End of quote. What we have here is the precursor and the instantiation of third-generation warfare.
you'll find that when you look at the German general staff, which was characterized by the efficacy and efficiency of the Prussians from 1805 until 1945, they kept military historians on staff and they paid close attention to what happened prior to the engagements, conflicts, and wars they would involve themselves into to see if they could draw lessons learned and lessons learned that would also influence what is not to be done. One thing these military historians on the German general staff observed was that during the American Civil War, what I'd like to characterize as the Second American Revolution from 1861 to 65, General Forrest would find himself not only as a cavalryman, but as what is known as dragoons, which is one rides to the fight and dismounts to conduct light infantry fighting off horse. What the Germans discovered was it was very interesting because of speed of horse versus speed of man, what that could do as far as investing the flank and rear of small to large enemy formations and folding them and achieving victory instead of fighting head-to-head, hence the very instantiation of maneuver warfare. This third-generation warfare focuses on using late modern technology-derived tactics of leveraging that speed and stealth and surprise that General Forrest was able to do, Nathan Bedford Forrest, to bypass the enemy's lines and collapse their forces from the rear or the flanks. Essentially, this was the end of linear warfare on the tactical level, with units seeking not simply to meet each other face-to-face, but to outmaneuver each other to gain the greatest advantage. Maneuver and combined arms, to quote Lind. The use of Blitzkrieg during the German invasion of France first demonstrated the power of speed and maneuverability over static artillery positions and trench defenses. Through the use of tanks, mechanized infantry, and close air support, the Germans were able to quickly break through linear defense and capture the rear. What you find is that with the German General Guderian, he had a very curious military occupational specialty during World War I. He was a signals officer, and it was his point in the design of the operational strategic forces under which the tactical forces would be employed especially in armored warfare, that not one tank would have radios, but all tanks would have radios. And these radios would be able to speak not only with ground pounders, but with ground support forces that were airborne and so far as naval forces where they were employed. The simple notion that there's this cross-disciplinary ferment between his signals experience as a military communications officer and the experience he had as the designer and emulator of large armored formations in Blitzkrieg and lightning warfare meant that the Germans were able to use this kind of dynamic warfare to use less than 12 months to pretty much conquer the continent of Europe, less the East. That would happen with Operation Barbarossa when in 1941 the Germans would violate the non-aggression treaty between themselves and the Soviet Union and launch into Russia. And on the date of that invasion, that just so happened to be the end of the Germans' ability 
to fight a war in World War II in which they would win in the end. That would make it simply impossible for reasons that are outside the margins of this podcast. But what I wanted to emphasize, well, as a matter of fact, let's take a moment here for definitional standards. You'll find that tactical operations are those operations that take place up to regimental, brigade, and divisional level. Operational theory would engage armies comprised of divisions. Strategic level would be how would one engage an entire regional war? Or in the grand strategic framework, how would one seek to win the war in the larger context of a world war? So what we have here is these first through third generations that are very much conventional conflict. And now we're going to talk about fourth generation warfare. Again, as presented by Lind, it's characterized by a postmodern return to decentralized forms of warfare. Blurring of the lines between war and politics, combatants and civilians to the nation states' loss of their near monopoly on combat forces, and returning to modes of conflict that were common in pre-modern times. I'm quoting Lind again. Fourth generation warfare is characterized by a blurring of the lines between war and politics, combatants and civilians. The, team was, the term was first used in 1989 by a team of United States analysts, including William S. Lind, to describe warfare's return to the decentralized form. In terms of generational modern warfare, the fourth generation signifies the nation-state's loss of their near-monopoly on combat forces, returning to the modes of conflict common to pre-modern times. End of quote. This will comprise the majority of what we're going to be looking at in this podcast series, Chasing Ghosts. We're going to be examining fourth-generation conflict, and I'll talk a little bit about fifth-generation conflict, hybrid conflict, gray zone conflict. All of these conflicts that aren't necessarily the ones that we would see in the conventional conflicts that we're all so familiar with. There's a laundry list of definitional standards for what comprises irregular warfare. Uh, these are everything from their complex and long-term, terrorism can be used, one can have counterinsurgency without terrorism, one can have terrorism without counterinsurgency. It doesn't mean they're exclusive to each other. And I want to get one thing out of the way, and that's this. I want to make it clear to everybody in the audience that between the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth generations of warfare, which we haven't spoken of, but we're going to, these don't have to be contemporaneous. They don't have to work together. None of these have to succeed each other numerically, and all of these have been employed since the dawn of man has started conducting conflicts of warfare among themselves. So continuing that list, it's a non-national or transnational base. It's highly decentralized. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's always non-state, and doesn't necessarily mean that it's state, and doesn't necessarily mean that there can't be a mix of those. Highly sophisticated psychological warfare, especially through media manipulation and lawfare, is used. In further episodes, when I break down what are the terms, conditions, definitional manifestations for irregular warfare, especially when we start discussing insurgency and counterinsurgency, we will discover that psychological warfare is a key component of the lion's share of those conflicts because all available pressures are used from political to economic to social to military. 
Non-combatants become tactical dilemmas. And of course, one can say non-combatants were the tactical dilemma that inaugurated the Treaty of Westphalia and the first generation of warfare to begin with. And fifth generation warfare. I've got to say, a lot of this is in mud. Fifth generation warfare doesn't have a lot of consensus and agreement right now. It's conducted primarily through non-kinetic military action, such as social engineering, social media, misinformation, black propaganda, white propaganda, cyber attacks, along with emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, and fully autonomous systems. Fifth generation warfare has been described by Daniel Abbott as a war of information and perception. I would say to Mr. Abbott that most likely information and perception imbues itself in all generations of warfare. And here we are quoting Lind again. Fifth generation warfare is warfare that is conducted primarily through non-kinetic military action. And it goes on to say, there is no widely agreed upon definition of fifth generation warfare, and it has been rejected by some scholars. So we will discuss that in a future episode, and we'll talk about what that means and what implications that has for the future. Again, I want to emphasize that these generations of warfare, especially the first three, which only seem to embrace conventional warfare, it is fair for you to ask, well, what is the context for your Irregular Warfare podcast and your series that you're doing? The context is that if you don't understand all forms of warfare, you are not going to be able to understand Irregular Warfare because you don't know where the boundary constraints are. And I emphasize again that Conventional conflict will always have irregular forces involved in it, with very few exceptions, whether it's the American or French experience in Vietnam, or what we saw with partisan behavior, such as King's Mountain, where the British Army was defeated in detail by what one could fairly say is irregular forces during the first American Revolution, and then a mere few decades Later, it was the Spanish ulcer of Spanish guerrillas who were hounding, harassing, and causing all kinds of mayhem for Napoleon's lines of communication and putting in the hazard a lot of the operational and strategic imperatives that he had in train at the time. So again, fourth generation, fifth generation, and possibly sixth generation warfare will dominate our discussions in the future. Now let's move on to civil wars. I'm of a mind that no abstract definition of a civil war can provide a set of necessary and sufficient conditions that could be applied mechanically. There's a lot of give and take to the definitional constructs and a lot of give and take to the difference in civil wars. For instance, in India today, some experts have observed that there may be as many as 300 guerrilla movements involved on the subcontinent of India. Even with a good abstract definition of civil war, the process of classifying which countries have experienced civil wars and when inevitably that involves judgments based on a close reading of the historical narratives of country experiences with the violence, whether large scale or not. Because not all countries will share all the dimensions in the definition of civil war. You will find that's a motif in our discussion of irregular warfare that is going to 
be common throughout a lot of our discussions, is that there are gray areas. There are what Bart Costco would call fuzzy thinking in this, in which not everything is black and white. And the constructs, of course, when viewed from those who are partisans or antagonists in particular civil wars, will come away with their own descriptions of what those narratives are. We define a civil war as a politically organized, large-scale, sustained, physically violent conflict that occurs within a country principally among large, numerically important groups of its inhabitants or citizens over the monopoly of physical force from within the country. I'll be recommending a lot of books during this podcast. I'll be using a lot of books during this podcast to satisfy not only my intellectual curiosity, but to bolster this podcast with some intellectual brickwork that is much more sufficient than what I can offer you. So I'd like to quote from a book by David Armitage called Civil Wars, A History and Ideas. Quote, Civil war is first and foremost a category of experience. The participants usually know they are in the midst of civil war long before international organizations declare it to be so. Yet it is an experience refracted through language and memory via the record of past civil wars and the ways they were thought and argued about often in distant times and far-flung places. And out of fears that the civil wars in one's own country history might come again, it is an experience framed, some might say distorted, by the conceptual heritage of civil war. Once a concept has emerged, it becomes irrevocably available as a lens through which conflicts could be viewed and as a weapon with which the rhetorical battles over their significance would be waged. Civil war must still be understood in the realm of ideas that are both inherited and contested. Struggles over its meaning will ensure that its multiple futures will be as controversial and as transformative as its contentious past. End of quote. Something of a word salad, but illustrative of the struggle in academia of providing definitional constructs for this. I want to emphasize that of all the Civil War variants, we are going to distill down to two, and I'm wide open for folks to correct me and say, well, there's going to be far more than two. I'm going to agree with that notion. But for simplicity's sake and discussion's sake, what we're going to do is we're going to say there's essentially two kinds of civil war. You're going to have the civil war that was characterized in 1861, 1865 in America, in which one part of the country did not seek to dominate the other, but simply through secession, dissolution, balkanization, and refusal to establish its own government within the regional confines of its new country. The other kind of civil war is a civil war one saw in Afghanistan, where you had a number of antagonists, in this case, three or more parties. And by the way, you'll find that in most civil wars, it is usually far greater than two contestants. You will have a number of entities that will be involved in that. For instance, there is this notion when people observe the Afghan civil war and that's exactly what it was during America's involvement, who say, well, it's the Taliban, and then it's the other forces that are based out of Kabul that are fighting this war. That's not the case at all. Afghanistan, outside of the state of Kabul, doesn't exist as a country and isn't, isn't acknowledged but by a few people outside of the confines of Kabul as a national 
political entity straddling that country and telling all of its constituent parts what to do. They are ignored largely. One could even say that, much like parts of northern Vietnam, there are state repellent areas that will not submit themselves to state control, in this case, Afghanistan. So what you have is you have a contest between folks, again, in a civil war, who don't want to take over the country in Kabul or in the 19th century. The South did not want to take over the North. It simply wanted to go its own way. Those are the two distinguishing markers for civil war planet-wide. And we'll discuss civil war a fair amount during the lifetime of this podcast series. Now I'd like to move on to what's referred to as regional war or conflict complexes. I really find this an interesting notion, and we will be examining this in the podcast series. Central to our distinction between civil wars and regional war complexes is the extent to which foreigners, who who are neither inhabitants nor citizens of a country, are key participants in the violent conflict. A pivotal element in our definition of civil war, and one that is shared, as noted earlier, by otherwise disparate definitions, is that the principal participants are inhabitants or citizens of the country experiencing the violence, that is, domestic participation, is high and foreign participation is low. In in, in contrast, a regional war complex has high foreign participation and domestic participation inside at least one of the countries involved in the violent conflict must be high enough to challenge the government's monopoly of force in that country. Regional war complexes must also be distinguished from international or interstate wars. Remember that when one considers the Afghanistan and the Iraq situations, for instance, invading armies are the foreigners in these conflicts. When you look at the fact that since we invaded Afghanistan in 2001, the U.S. in this case, and Iraq in 2003, these conflict complexes have expanded to Libya, the Horn of Africa, Yemen, and many other places situated within the Middle East. Because what we discover is that they decant smaller war flashpoints. So let me tease that out a bit. What I mean when I say that is that when one looks at World War II from 1939 to 1945, even though some would say it started in 1937 because of both German and Japanese behavior in the, um, the conquering of parts of Czechoslovakia and the conquering of China, respectively. Well, the war didn't actually end in 1945. Because as with so many large dynamic warfare complexes, a regional complex was in play there. In this case, it would be Eastern Europe. Or in the other case, it would be the colonial provinces under the British Empire, the French Empire, the Belgian Empire, the nascent Japanese Empire. All of these colonial conflicts that were quite literally decanted and brewed up as a result of the opening of that genie's bottle by the hostilities inherent in the entire war complex of World War II. World War II, for many people, did not end in August 1945. If I recall, I think the last 
gorilla to come out of either the Estonian, Lithuanian, or Latvian forest, the famed Forest Brothers, was in 1980 surrendering to Soviet authorities. These kind of things don't end on a clean timeline, nor do they end in a fashion that would be embraced by conventional thinkers of how warfare takes place. So in review, we've discussed the five generations of warfare, we've discussed civil wars, we've discussed regional conflict and war complexes. So I'd like to take us to the next step. The next step is, why does irregular warfare matter to any of us? Well, it matters from a policy perspective, from a force planning perspective, from a U.S. perspective, from an allied perspective. There are so many reasons why one should be more acquainted with what the components are of irregular warfare. A lot of us are military historians, amateur military historians, who find a lot of interest in this kind of study. You'll discover that military history may be one of the most dynamic, all-encompassing, and really interesting examinations of how hum humans not only cooperate, but fight each other. One would be hard-pressed to find in the literature of the planet, going back hundreds of years, something as compelling and all-encompassing as military history. We're going to discuss a lot of that. What I find, for instance, is that further down the road, when we start examining the Irish conflict from 1916 to 1922, and then from 1923 to World War II, and then the beginning of the Troubles from 1969 until the peace accords, ostensibly, in the 90s in Ireland, for primary source and secondary source documentation, we have one of the largest treasure troves of English language archives when it comes to that particular conflict than anything else. What you'll find interesting today when we look at what's happening in Ukraine, whichever dog you have in the hunt, I don't happen to have one, is that if things go as badly as people portend, there is a possibility that for the first time since 1945 to 1970, which was the settling of Eastern Europe and the quelling of all the conflict, revolts, revolutions, small and large that occurred until they were finally consolidated under Soviet rule, we will have possibly a European heritage insurgency, in this case Ukrainians, against an ostensibly European-Asian heritage counterinsurgency modality on the part of the Russians if they find themselves going to head head to head after the conventional conflict ends. There is so much to be mined and drilled and examined from an irregular warfare perspective of what works, what doesn't, what interesting cobweb-laden parts of history are that, that we can unearth and and take a look at. I would also invite members of my audience to write me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That's cgpodcast at pm.me before I get a website set up. And uh, tell me what you want to hear, uh, constructive criticism of 
a better way to do this podcast, whatever the case may be. So while this podcast is a modest and shorter length than I anticipate for future episodes, I did want to see what degree of interest there was in me pursuing this podcast in the first place and letting me know what topics you would like me to investigate in the future. The length of the podcast, I'm not really certain what that's going to be. I have enjoyed listening to Daryl Cooper and his extraordinary Martyr Made podcast where he has episodes that are up to six hours long. I know that four to five hour episodes are almost de rigueur for Dan Carlin and Hardcore History, and he does a terrific idea. And I'm drawing some of my ideas from the craft and work and investigative dynamic that those two gentlemen have put into their podcast. They've inspired me to do this one, as a matter of fact. Again, I'd like to thank Prof. CJ at the Vaunted Dangerous History Podcast, who in 2015, he and I agreed to do one podcast episode in Irregular Warfare that turned into a podcast series of a total of six. If it weren't for that, I probably wouldn't have the foundational inspiration for belatedly taking up the cudgel to do this very broadcast myself. I'd like to emphasize that before I get my website put together, if you want to get in touch with me with things that have to do with this podcast, recommendations, constructive criticisms, opinions, recommendations for future shows, please email me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me.